Go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 17, 1 and 2 Kings are near the front of the Bible, and uh, so I want to uh, just encourage you, if you don't know where 1 Kings is, you can go to the table of contents, there's no, there's no shame uh, in that. So um, we are launching a new series, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but let me just kind of set it up this way. The most important choice that you will ever make is the choice of who or what you're going to worship. The most important choice you'll ever make is the choice of who or what you're going to worship. The reality is, is everybody worships. Everyone is a worshiper. Even atheists worship. And so it's really all about making the choice of who or what you're going to worship. It's the most important decision you make, and nothing's going to impact your life more than that decision. I can promise you that. Now, the God of choice today for most people in our society is really the God of enoughness. You know what I mean by enoughness? It's kind of where we just have this, in, this invisible standard in our mind of enough. And um, a lot of people worship trying to feel like they've met that standard, that, they've, that they are enough. And all you have to do is Listen carefully, and you'll hear that word enough everywhere you go, especially in the midst of the anxiety and the loneliness and the exhaustion and the division that really characterizes our cultural moment that we're in. All you have to do is open your eyes wide enough and observe people all around you every single day scrambling to be enough, to have enough, to be thin enough. To be beautiful enough, to be rich enough, to be famous enough, to be successful enough, to be athletic enough, to be smart enough, and certainly everybody's favorite, to be good enough. See, we believe intrinsically that there is this invisible uh, benchmark in our minds that if we can reach that benchmark, then we will be deemed valuable and worthy will be vindicated, and at last we can finally be loved. We're finally worthy of being loved. In other words, if we can get enough, we would finally be enough. But here's the kicker, church. No matter how much you accomplish, no matter what you achieve, no matter how close you get to enoughness, you never quite arrive. You never get there. It's kind of like uh, someone asked a rich man, how much money is enough to make a man happy. And the rich man looked and said, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. You see, the reality is all of us can attest to this truth that, that this threshold of enough simply doesn't is, exist in our lives. And yet there's, there's a vulnerability in all of us to give ourselves to this pursuit, this, this chasing of enoughness in the world, it's, it's, it's a temptation for us to, to give ourselves to the illusion that we can, we can get there. We can get there this time after, after so many failed attempts. And the reality is, is this pursuit of enoughness really puts us in direct conflict with God because the fundamental assumption in this all-out pursuit of enoughness is that God is not enough that Jesus is not enough for us, that we need Jesus plus something else, that we need Jesus plus money, we need Jesus, you know, plus nice things, we need Jesus and accomplishments in our life, we need, we need Jesus and, you know, whatever, whatever it is you would fill in the blank with. And so we need all of these things to really make us happy because Jesus is not enough. And that's what I really want us to talk about uh, in, this, uh, in this message today. We're starting this new series called God and Kings. And we're going to be focused really in these books of First and Second Kings in the Old Testament uh, for the next several weeks. And we're going to go back in time, church, about 3,000 years. And uh, this is about... 900 years before Jesus was born. And so the iPhone doesn't exist. The Roman Empire doesn't exist. Uh, interestingly enough, the Olympic Games do not even exist at this point. Uh, and yet Israel exists. 
And I'll tell you, church, Israel is really struggling. They're really struggling in their relationship with God because of their pursuit of enoughness. They have given themselves to the pursuit of idols that make them feel like they're going to have enough. And so, and so what you see is Israel is struggling so much that the nation is divided now into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, and then you have the southern kingdom of Judah. And what is characterizing both kingdoms is just a falling away from God, that they've just turned their back on the living in true God, that they have given themselves to the worship of these idols in order for them to feel like they're going to have enough. And so during this conflict, and we're going to see this played out in the lives of, um, so, you know, in the lives of Elijah and Elisha, these were two prophets that God had raised up to confront the people in their idolatry and to call them back home, to call them to repentance. And I will tell you, church, if you're not familiar with the story of Elijah and Elisha, uh, they do some incredible things. The story of Elijah and Elisha is just absolutely amazing. God does so much through them. And the tendency is to kind of think about how great and awesome Elijah and Elisha really are because of how God uses them. But in reality, what they're trying to do is help us to see how great and awesome God really is. In fact, really what we see through their life and through their ministry is this, church, that God is enough, that God is enough. All right, so here's what I want us to do today. I want us to read a section of 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to start at the first verse, and then we're going to jump down to verse 8 and read the rest of the chapter. So it's a little bit of a long passage, so I ask for your patience and ask you if you're willing and able, let's stand together as we read the Word of God this morning. So the writer of Kings says this, he says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now skip down to verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, Arise and go to Zarephath, which, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. And behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and he came to, this, to the gate of the city. Behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little bit of oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and, and he and her household ate for many days. And the jar of flour was not spent, neither the jug of oil became empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah." And after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what, what have you against me, O man of God, that you've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, have you, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? And then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. 
And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. It's interesting when you, when you read this, this section of scripture, and we didn't read the first 12 verses of the chapter, but it's interesting because God is described two times in the first 12 verses as the living God. And uh, it's interesting because really the purpose of this chapter is to show us that God is involved, that God is active, that God is alive. And so what we see is this picture of the living God, that he is real and he is, he is working in so many ways. And really what 17 does is it sets up chapter 18. And chapter 18 we're going to cover next week. You don't want to miss that church. It's kind of like uh, a gunfight at the OK Corral. I mean, this is some really good stuff. Uh, that we're going to be seeing in chapter 18. But this morning, what I want us to do is I just very simply want to just share with you three attributes of the living God. And, and that's just, this is really what I think the writer of Kings is trying to set up for us. He wants us to see who the living God is and what he is like. So I want to share with you these, these three attributes that the living God confronts, he includes, and he sacrifices. All right, so let's look at the first one, the living God confronts. Now, what do, I, what do I mean by that? Well, very simply, the living God confronts our idolatry. In other words, the living God jealously pursues us. He comes after us. And uh, we, what we see is, is this all throughout uh, verse or chapter 17. And what, what is happening is the people of Israel have abandoned their faith in God. They have, church, they have walked away from their relationship with the living and true God. And so in this season of history that Israel is in, there is a succession of very bad kings that lead to the worst king of all, and his name is King Ahab. And let me just show you how bad King Ahab is. This is in verse uh, this is in chapter 16, verse 31, and this is just a little bit in front of what, where we just read. And notice, notice how the writer of Kings describes him. Je he says this, Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of the Sidonians. So Jezebel is going to be Ahab's wife, and she is a real Georgia peach. Let me just tell you that, okay? Uh, she is a wicked woman, which we'll, we'll talk more about in a minute. And then it says this, that Ahab went and he served Baal and worshipped him. And then he goes on to say in verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, which is like a, it's like a totem pole. Okay? And so it was, it was just this pole in the ground erected to, to Baal. So he made an Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel to anger than all of, the, all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Now that is a very, very interesting legacy. I mean, can you imagine going to a funeral and somebody gets up and speaks of the deceased and says, you know what, this guy, he did more to provoke God to anger than anybody else who ever lived. That would be a very ominous, I mean, everybody would be like, whoa, you know. And that's exactly the picture that we get of Ahab. And uh, this guy is bad. Now, really the truth of the matter is this. Ahab and Jezebel are the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament. They are bad news. And it's clear as we walk through this story over these next few weeks that Jezebel's wearing the pants in the, rela in the relationship. She is really driving this. She not only wants to introduce paganism to the people of Israel, but it's her desire to eradicate the worship of the living God from Israel. And so what she decides to do is she brings with her from her area, Sidon, that's where she's from, she brings with her 850 prophets of Baal who are there to brainwash the people in the worship of Baal, to kind of to seduce them into this kind of idolatry. And, and she and Ahab developed this scheme to hunt down all of the true prophets of God and have them killed and murdered. 
This is what is going on at this time period, and it is, it is not good. Now, let me talk a little bit about Baal so that you understand kind of what is going on. Baal is the fertility god. Baal is the god of rain. Baal is the god that makes the crops produce fruit, and the sheep and the cattle and the goats reproduce. Baal is really the god that ensures the prosperity. He is, uh, he is really the god of of the economy in, in, this, in this time period. And so really what's happening on this is that it seems like on paper Baal is winning. Because what you have is you have the devoted followers of the true and living God on the run. They're running for their lives. And then you have the people of Israel forsaking the living God. And, and then you have the government of Ahab and Jezebel pumping paganism into the spiritual economy of the people. That is what is going on. And so this is how bad it is. Now, for us to really understand how evil it is in that day, Baal worship involved child sacrifice. So these people really want Baal to bless them and make them prosperous. And if they were very committed to that, in so many instances, they would offer up their children to be sacrificed to him. Not only that, but Baal worship also involved temple prostitution. So a part of their regular worship was going to shrines dedicated to Baal and, and being involved in temple prostitution, as you might imagine what that would be like. That is how bad it is in Israel. So here's the question. What does God do? What does he do? God raises up a person. He raises up a person. And see, what we, what we come to see over and over in Scripture is God always uses people to accomplish his purposes. So he raises up Elijah. And it's interesting here because the, the name Elijah, Elijah's name means God lives. God literally lives. And what you see in this chapter is this contrast that exists between the living God and Baal, who is dead. He's not even worthy of our worship. And so God raises up Elijah, and Elijah is called by God to go to Ahab and bring a message to the king of Israel. And this message is a very difficult message for Ahab to hear. You see it in verse 1. Elijah, it says this. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, church, think about what's happening here. Elijah is called by God to go to Ahab Ahab and Jezebel are hunting down the prophets of God and having them killed. So Elijah has so much courage and commitment in his relationship with God that he goes right into the hornet's nest and kicks it by delivering this very difficult message of judgment uh, to, to the king of Israel. And he is bold and he is courageous and he delivers this message. This is nothing short of uh, just astonishing the message that he delivers. And I think there's a lesson for us in this because we're living in a time where we're seeing our culture slide deeper and deeper into darkness, deeper and deeper into a moral abyss, into paganism ourselves. And this is the time for us to stand up for the truth and speak the truth in love, that we would proclaim the gospel in grace and truth, that we would not be scared to be silent because of cancel culture, but that we would go forth in boldness and in love. And that's exactly what we see uh, Elijah doing. Now, you can only imagine the implications of his message to Ahab. It's not going to rain for a long time. And just follow me on the progression. If it's not going to rain, that means there's not going to be fruit from the crops, and if there's not going to be fruit from the crops, there's not going to be pasture land for the animals to graze in. And if there's not going to be fruit from the crops and pasture for the animals to graze in, there's not going to be food. And if there's not going to be food, there's not going to be life. 
And so this is, this is a huge, huge development of what's going on in the people of Israel. And so what God is doing, church, is he's bringing judgment on the people because they have abandoned him. They have walked away from him. They have rejected him, and they are engaged in some, some really horrible things. And so God is jealous for the allegiance of his people. That God is not going to tolerate his people worshiping idols and turning to other gods. And so what he does is he sends, he sends a drought because he's trying to bring the people back to himself. And that's exactly what we see. God is confronting the idols that they worship by showing how impotent they really are. How lifeless they, they really are. How dead that they are. And what he's trying to show is that he, the living God, is not passive. He is alive and he is a jealous God and he pursues those who belong to him. And so that's, that's what we see. He is going after his people to try to save them and he does it through judgment. Now, what about the idols that we worship today? Let's just kind of take a minute and apply this. What about the idols that we worship? I mean, we don't worship Baal, right? Obviously, that's a, a Canaanite god from thousands of years ago. But the gods that we worship today are just as destructive. You see, idolatry is really anything that we look to for life, for meaning, for purpose, for significance, for value. That's not of God. That's what idolatry is. When you and I look to something else and we give that something else greater affection, greater attention, greater affirmation than we give to God, that's an idol. It's just anything that comes between us and our relationship with God. Because we think that that will make us feel like we're enough. That it'll make us feel like we're significant. Because so many times, let's just be honest, we don't feel like we're enough. We don't, we don't feel like we're significant. And so we look for these other things outside of God to make us feel like we measure up and we meet, this, we meet the standard of the world. Now, what, what are some of the idols that we worship today? Well, I think one of them is just busyness. Just plain busyness. And the message of busyness, the, the worship of busyness is, I am enough because of how busy I am. I must be an important person because I'm just so incredibly busy. And our greatest fear is like somebody asks you how you're doing and we're like, I'm doing okay. I don't really have a whole lot to do, you know, because that would make us feel insignificant. Or maybe some of us worship health. You know, and we say, oh, I'm enough because I eat organic and I work out and, you know, uh, yeah, I use essential oils and all of that stuff. Or maybe we worship beauty. I am enough because I'm thin and desirable. Or maybe we worship success. I'm enough because of what I've achieved. Maybe in athletics or in academics, maybe in the business world, I'm enough because look what I've done. Maybe we worship our kids. I'm enough because of how good my kids are. Look at how much Look at how well they perform. Look at, look at how smart they are. Look at how well they perform on the stage. I am enough because of what my kids are able to do. Or maybe we worship technology. I am enough because I'm on the cutting edge of the latest technology and that makes me very efficient with my time and makes me connected to the world of information. It's, it's all about this feeling of enoughness. And do you know what God does with that church? What he does is he will allow our idols to collapse right in front of us. He will. So if you worship health, he can allow you to get sick. And uh, if you worship your kids, he can allow your kids to reject you. You worship money, and uh, all of a sudden, money gets really tight. He will knock our idols down. Now, why does he do that? Because he's cruel and unjust? No, he does it because he loves us. He does it because he knows there's no life in idolatry. There's no real enoughness in idolatry. There's no, there's no real joy. 
And so what he wants to do is he wants to give you life. He wants to give you himself. And that idol is keeping you from having him. And he just wants you to have him. And so he will, he will let those idols very much collapse. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, Pastor Tim Keller was, he was on MSNBC's Morning Joe show. And uh, he was giving some advice about career and work and success. And uh, I was amazed that he was saying this on national TV, but this is basically what he said. He said, he said when you make your work your identity, in other words, when you make your work your God, he said it will destroy you. It'll absolutely destroy you. He said if you're successful in your work, then it goes to your head and you, you think you become the center of the universe. He says if you're not successful and you struggle, then what happens, it goes to your heart and then it affects your self-worth. And it destroys your self-worth. He said during this interview, he said, you know, when you, have, when you anchor your identity in faith in Christ, when you anchor yourself in the worship of the true and living God, basically is what he was saying, then, then you're not anchored in your work or your accomplishments, which insulates us from the weather changes of life. He said, what happens is this, that if, you're, if your identity is found in Christ, if you're worshiping the living God, then when you're successful, you stay humble. And then when you hit a rough patch and you struggle and maybe you fail, then you have a sense of security and confidence because you know who you're anchored in. You know who's really in control. And then he ended this by saying, you know, work is really a great thing when it's a servant and not your Lord. Now, I think that can be applied to any of the gods that we are tempted to worship today. I mean, if you, if you worship beauty, what happens when you're no longer beautiful? If you worship money, what happens when you no longer have any money? If you worship technology, what happens when your technology breaks down? You can go on and on about this. And, and this is not something for a few of us, church. What I'm talking about is for all of us. And you can put me in the front of the line. And I can tell you throughout my life, I have, I have tried to find enoughness for me in sports. I've tried to find it in success, ministry success. I've tried to find enoughness in you know, technology or my kids or whatever. I've tried all of that. And God has allowed, at different points, those idols to collapse right in front of me to remind me that he is all that I have and he is all that I really need. Does that make sense? And so, and so really, it's like Jesus says, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. It's just... A tremendous paradox. And so, and so God, the living God, confronts our idols. But secondly, the living God includes. He, the living God, includes. Now, Elijah delivers this hard, hard message to Ahab. And uh, I don't really know, church, because uh, the writer doesn't tell us. It would be very interesting to know these details how Elijah made it out of the palace that day. That would be really interesting um, because he goes to the heart of the hornet's nest and strikes it and knocks it down and then apparently just walks out. So, so God leads him and puts him on the run. So Elijah is led by God to go to Zarephath in Sidon. Okay, so this is kind of geographically, this is north of the northern kingdom of Israel. And what God does is he puts Elijah in connection with a widow that lives in Zarephath. And God's plan is that this widow is going to provide for his needs. He's in full-time ministry. He's got to have some ministry support. And God, in all of his wisdom, chooses a widow of all people to provide for Elijah's needs. Now, do you guys know how crazy that is? That is absolutely insane that God would do it that way because a widow in the ancient world was basically the same thing as living in poverty. 
I mean, they didn't have social security back then. You know what I'm saying? And she even has to care for her son. And so she literally has nothing. And so when Elijah gets there, he says, can you give me something to drink? And can you give me something to eat? And she says, you know what? All I have is this little bit of water and this little bit of food. This is our last meal. My son uh, and I, this is, this is our last meal. And, uh, and then we're going to die, she says then we're going to be dead because, because it hasn't rained in a long time. You remember the message that Ahab heard from Elijah? It hasn't rained, and it's affecting the people all the way up into Sidon. And so Elijah looks at her and says, I want you to give it to me. Now, he doesn't say that because he's selfish. He says that because he assures her that God is going to provide every step of the way for her. And basically, he challenges her to put her faith in the living God. And at that moment, church, she was standing at a fork in the road. She had to make a choice. She had to say, either I'm going to trust God and I'm going to give away my last meal or I'm going to hold on to it and not trust God and trust in myself. God was testing her that day and to see, to see which way she would go. And so uh, that's really the heart of the issue for us, isn't it? Where we have to make a decision. We, God puts us at a fork in the road and we've got to make a decision. We have to decide, am I going to trust and walk in obedience to God or am I not? Am I going to do my own thing? Basically what God is saying here is this. He's basically saying, will you surrender everything you have to me? Will you trust me? Will you surrender to me? That's what he's saying to the widow of Zarephath, and you know what she says? She says, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. Church, this is, this is exactly what it means to be converted to Christ. This is exactly what it means that I, that I take my life out of my hands and I place it in the hands of a loving and caring God. And I say to God, I give you my kids, I, I give you my job, I give you my health, I give you my future, I give you my entire life. God, I give it all to you and I'm trusting you with it. That is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And what you see right here in the Old Testament is this widow from Zarephath and Sidon is converted right in front of our eyes and she, as a step of faith, as a step of faith and obedience, gives her meal, her last meal, to Elijah, and uh, it's just an, a stunning choice. In fact, what's, what's really ironic about this is that Elijah has to go to a pagan country, Sidon. He has to go to a pagan country where he comes across a widow who the world says is not enough. She doesn't measure up because she's a widow. And she's the one who demonstrates faith and obedience more than Elijah's people, the chosen people of God. The irony is right there. And she makes that choice to trust in God. And I just wonder if you've made that choice. I wonder if you're living in that choice. Now, I know at some point a long time ago, maybe when you were at you know, on a retreat or at a camp or something when you were really young, you made a choice and you asked Jesus into your heart. But my question to you today is, are you trusting him today? Are you walking in him today? Have you come to him and said, Lord, I give you my life today afresh and anew? You know, we have to be renewed in that every single day. We have to walk in that every single day. It's a choice that you have to make every single day because God will present to you a fork in the road every single day. Am I going to trust God or am I going to live for myself? That's really the question. And there's no middle ground to it. As much as we try to slide to the middle, there's no middle there. It's either or. Let me just kind of show you how this is lived out every day. You know, it's totally um, in vogue today. It's, it's really the common practice today that um, a young couple, before they get married, that they choose to live together before they get married. And uh, it's interesting because you even, we're even seeing this in Florida where there are a lot of retirees that are single 
And uh, even they choose to live together when they get involved in these in romantic relationships. But it's really interesting. The most common reason why, you know, young 20-somethings um, choose to do this is, you know, some of them will say, well, we're just trying to test drive in the relationship a little bit. But most, mostly what they're going to say is, um, we're, we're really doing this to save money. We're going to live together. And then one day we'll get married. Uh, but we're going to do this now to just save money. We don't want two mortgage payments. We don't want two rent payments. And, uh, and so that's kind of the common thing. And, and it's just crazy because it's just, it's just the way the culture has gone today. And uh, they don't realize what they're saying. They're basically saying this, money is our God. Money is most important. Honoring God second, third, fourth on the list. They're building their romantic relationship on idolatry. They're selling out for the dollar. And I'm just telling you, church, that's what the culture says. It's nothing short of a banquet in a grave. That's what it is. It causes so many problems in the relationship thereafter. It is simply not worth it. And what I can tell you, seeing this played out so many times, whatever you give to God, God will bless it, multiply it, and give it right back to you. But you gotta trust him. You come to that fork in the road and you say, am I gonna believe the promises of God or am I not? It is just that simple. And what I'm telling you here is this, that if you will take that step of faith, whatever you give to God, he will take it, bless it, multiply it, and give it right back to you. Now, as we think about this living God that includes, it's really, it's really shocking to me that this widow is even in the story at all because she's really not that important in the eyes of the world. I mean, she's really not enough in, in the eyes of society and culture. And so uh, it's just shocking that God chooses to use her and to work through her. And he chooses this widow to bless her and to use her to provide for probably one of the greatest prophets in the entire Old Testament. Now think about this, to think about how ironic this really is. This widow is living right in the middle of Baal country. She is from the hometown of Jezebel, the Georgia peach. You guys remember that? She's from her town. That's how bad uh, the pagan worship there is. And God sets his love on this widow. God reveals his love and his blessing to this widow. This is the widow that the world says is not enough. She's, she's poor, she's weak, she's an outcast, she's an outsider, and she's a widow, and God is revealing his love to her. It's absolutely amazing. And you see this over and over and over and over again in scripture where God sets his heart on people that the world says, you know what, we might as well write them off because they are insignificant in our eyes. And that is exactly God chooses to use. And so God absolutely loves outsiders. He really does. And if you're sitting there listening to me or maybe you're listening online and you think, you know what, God could never love me because I'm just not enough. You know, I'm an outsider. You know, I'm beyond God's reach. Let me just tell you something, church. You're dead wrong. You are dead wrong. This week I, I heard the story of a man named Greg Laurie. And um, Greg Laurie, when he was 17 year old, he was... Uh, in high school in California, and he was a drug user. He was part of the in crowd in his high school, and uh, he was part of a drug using crowd. And uh, he was really living the high life uh, in more ways than one. So, um, and he was aware of all the Jesus freaks at his high school, and um, you know he just thought, you know, who cares about them? And uh, and one day he met this pretty girl. And uh, he looked down, and this pretty girl that, sh that he had met was carrying a Bible. And he was like, what a complete waste of a pretty girl that she would carry a Bible. 
Well, later that day, he was walking out of his high school and he noticed that same pretty girl was on the front lawn of the high school with a big group of kids and they were there singing, they were there worshiping God. So he goes up, Greg Laurie does, goes up and sits right next to this pretty girl and he's looking around and they're all worshiping and just filled with joy and peace and love for, for God and for one another. And he's like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I can't believe this. And he sits there and he's listening and watching all of this stuff go down. And, and then all of a sudden he starts to think to himself, what if this is true? What if this is real? So they stop singing and then there's a message and then there's an invitation. And then the, the person who was giving the message prayed this prayer. And right then, before Greg Laurie even got up off the grass, he prayed a prayer to receive Christ and God changed his life that day. Four years later, he entered into the ministry, and he, by God's grace, built one of the largest churches in the United States today. Isn't that amazing how God can do that? How God can take an outsider and turn them into an insider? How God can take what the world rejects and show his love and his grace and his favor to, to them, and so... And so that's, that's the work that God specializes in. So if you're here today and you think, oh, I'm nothing. You know, I am nothing and God is so far away. Don't you believe it, church? He is right there with you. I mean, you may be a high school student and you're trying to figure out who you are and what this world is all about. Let me tell you something. God loves you. And you may be a, a single lady today and all you want is for some man to pursue you and love you and marry you. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ loves you and he is pursuing you. And maybe, maybe you're some hardworking guy that you work 80 hours a week to provide for your family day in and day out. Man, you do the grind better than anybody. Let me tell you something. God is honored in your hard work, but life is more than just hard work. God wants you to know and walk with him and he, he will reveal his love to you. But when you come to the fork in the road, you gotta make that choice to trust and obey him. Here's the last one. The living God confronts, the living God includes, and then the living God sacrifices. The living God sacrifices. Now this story takes a surreal turn. If you remember, um, the widow's son all of a sudden gets sick and dies. And uh, it's just mind-blowing, the twists and turns in this story. And uh, I want you to notice verse 18. I want you to notice how the widow responds to Elijah. And uh, you see it in verse 18, and it says this, and she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God, that you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? Now, there's a lot of mixed emotions in with what's going on with her. She's angry, she's grieving, she's sad, and she's feeling guilty. And she really raises a very interesting question. She's, like, she's basically asking the question, did my son die because of my sin? That's the question she's asking. I mean, am I being punished? Is my son being punished because of something that I've done? And that was kind of the theology. And it's a really good question. And I think it's a question that we need, to, we, need to be, we need to be asking ourselves. You see, I think she's aware of something that we need to be aware of ourselves. And, and, and it's, it's this, that when we sin against someone else, when we wrong someone else, when we do evil against someone else, we create a debt in that relationship. And that debt can't just evaporate. It can't just disappear. That debt has to be paid. And, and, so, and so what, you know, a lot of people will kind of think to themselves, well, why, you know, why can't God just throw some pixie dust over the sins of the world? I mean, why does Jesus have to die? Why can't he just turn the other way and forgive all of our sins? Why do you have to go through all of this? And the reason for that is because there's a debt that has to be paid. And so when someone sins against you, when someone wrongs you, you only have two choices with the debt. 
Your first choice would be when somebody hurts you, you can pay them back. You can get them back. You can squeeze them and make them squirm and suffer and you can pay down that debt a little bit and you can feel really good making them suffer for what they did to you. Now what will happen is you'll become a child of the devil if you do that, but that's definitely an option. It's definitely on the list as one of your choices. But then the second option would be that when somebody else has hurt you, you pay for it. You forgive. You cover the debt. And the way you would do that would be that you see that person, they've hurt you, they've wronged you, and you see them and you just want to grab them and shake them, right? We've all been there and done that. But instead of grabbing them and shaking them, you're cordial, you're loving. Or maybe you're with a group of people and the name of the person who's wronged you, their name surfaces in the conversation and instead of you running them down, you take the high road and you bless them with your words. It'd be hard. We've all been there. It'd be painful. But you would be covering that debt. And see, the interesting thing is, is that in the short term, if you continue in that path of forgiving them, then you're going to become free from resentments, bitterness, and anger. You're the one who gets set free from that. But make no mistake, church, when one person wrongs another, there's always a debt that has to be paid. Someone's going to pay it. Now, if that's true in our relationships with one another, how much more true is it in our relationship with God? That when we have sinned against him, we create a debt between us and God that has to be paid. So the widow's son dies, and Elijah says, give me the boy. And she gives it to him. She gives... Uh, her son to him, and he carries him upstairs, lays him out on the bed. And I, I think probably the picture here is that he is kneeling beside this, you know, her son, and he stretches out his hands, and he's praying, and he's interceding, and he's lifting this boy up, and he's praying that God would restore this child, and that he would be raised. And so we don't really know how long but God answers his prayer and breath enters into this child again and he gets up. He's raised, raised from the dead right there. And I think this is God's way of saying to the widow, your son didn't pay for your sins. My son will. Your son didn't cover your debt. But this is God's way of saying, my son Jesus will pay your debt. Because what this resurrection really points us to is the ultimate resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and who was raised on the third day. And so really the gospel of the living God is this, that the living God sacrificed for you and for me to pay our debt. That is how much you are loved by him. That's how much he cares for you. That God is enough to cover our debt. God is enough to satisfy our need. God is enough to secure our future. And God is enough to provide everything that you need. He is enough, church. And so what this means is this, the gospel. The gospel is this, you don't need idols and you don't, you don't need to worship other gods because the living God is enough. And the living God demonstrates his love for you in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. He died in our place. So what God are you tempted to worship? What God are you pursuing? My challenge to us, church, is look to the cross. Look to the God who sacrifices, who includes, who loves, and who confronts us. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we, we give you praise and we give you glory for the, the work of your Holy Spirit in our midst today. Lord, we know it's not by might, it's not by power, but it is by your Spirit, says the Lord. And Father, you know all of our insecurities, you know all of those feelings of lacking and insignificance, all the ways that we fear the judgment of the world on us. But I just, I just thank you, God, for how you, 3,000 years ago, in very real and practical ways, showed a widow in Zarephath, you are enough, that she can trust in you. And I thank you that you showed that to Elijah over and over again. And I just pray, God, today, as we sit in the quietness of this moment, you know all the idols that we, we struggle, that we just so oftentimes pursue. And, and God, I just ask that you would loosen our grip. I, I pray that you would just cause us to let go and to find our identity in you. Lord, it's really not about what we achieve. It's not about the kind of house we live in or it, how many people know us. It, it's really not about that. It's about walking with you, God. It's about knowing you and loving you and loving other people. So God, I pray that, that you would just have permission today to collapse the idols that we so often run to. We would just pry our hands off of them. That we would just cling to you, the living God. The God who loves. The God who saves. The God of all peace. And so we pray this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.